Right, well, I think we're all here. We have something of a flexible cast here at the RMC. I'm back. This is Hannah Scott Joint. Um, after a week or so laid low with the dreaded COVID, irritatingly still testing positive, but otherwise OK. And this week, Rosie's on her holes. Uh, so with me are journalists Leo Devine and Amadeep Bassi. Hi, chaps. Morning. How are you? Hi, Hannah. We're very well. Well, I am. I hope you are. You all right, Amadeep? I'm just as well as Leah, thank you. Good, good, good. Welcome to this week's Religion Media Centre podcast. Um, Leo, I was listening to last week's podcast um, from my sickbed. Very much enjoyed Pablo the singing goat, but I have to say he set the dog off. So um, thanks for that. Very healing, that was. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. it reminded me of um, Malcolm, this friend uh, who's a vicar in Suffolk who um, does pet services at his church and he has a horse called Neville and he rides Neville right into church, fully robed. That's Malcolm, not Neville. does. Yes, absolutely. Um, and and does the service from Neville's back. So, um, yes, that's marvellous. That's quite a spectacle and possibly <laughs> even beats Pablo the Singing Goat. Um, but uh, but what's caught your eye this week in the news? Amadeep, how about you? Uh, there's been a lot of coverage about the upcoming uh, coronation next year. Uh, and in particular, what caught my eye was um, the renewing of a, an ongoing kind of dispute about uh, returning a fabled diamond that was taken by the uh, East India Company back in the 1850s. Uh, yes, the, the Kohinoor diamond, oh, yes. Kohinoor, the, the mountain of light. Um, India has actually put in a formal kind of statement to the British government saying, uh, we're aware that Camilla may be wearing the crown. Uh, it reminds us of the sad colonial past. Uh, it falls short of asking for the Kohinoor back. Uh, I mean, it seems to be a regular occurrence that the Kohinoor um, you know, calls for it to be returned every few years. But uh, it's quite notable that this time India didn't ask for it back, just sort of said, you know, this is bringing up painful memories. Um, mm. I mean, the, the, the history of the, the, the Kohinoor, you know, is, is clouded in mystery, really. Um, the last we really know of it is when it was handed to uh, Queen, Victoria, Queen Victoria, essentially, in 1850 by the last Sikh Maharaja, albeit he was 11 years old at the time. So... There has been this, you know, kind of dispute as to whether, you know, was he of an age where he could really hand over uh, something like that, knowing the implications, or was it spoils of war, essentially? Mm. Um, I mean, who could possibly know the implications over decades and uh, centuries to come, I guess? But um, we're going to talk more about the coronation, impending coronation, uh, in a moment. But, Leo, what's caught your eye this week? Yeah, well, where do you start, really? Um, I mean, at one end of the scale, we had the Pope this week warning about the dangers of nuclear war, obviously off the back of um, the Ukraine and everything that's happened there. He even recalled the Cuban Missile Crisis of 1962 and said we should not forget the danger of nuclear war that menaced the world at this time. And then at the other end, I mean, the economy, you just can't avoid it, can you? And I think last week we were bemoaning the fact that Faith leaders perhaps were being a bit quiet on what was happening and how people were were suffering. But I know that this week, um, one of the faith leaders, the Bishop of Durham in the House of Lords, that's um, the the right Reverend Paul Butler, who said a policy of trickle-down economics renders those in poverty invisible, like Lazarus waiting to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Um, so, and also, I think the the Bishop of Derby got involved. So, we've had a few more kind of voices of uh, dissent over this week, and from other faiths too. But uh, there you go; those are my two things this week. You can't avoid the economy; it's just dominating the news at the moment. 
Absolutely. Well, you may know that the RMC puts out a daily news bulletin, which you can have sent straight to your inbox inbox first thing each weekday morning. Uh, If you don't subscribe already, you can do so really easily via the website, religionmediacentre.org.uk. And one story that caught my eye there midweek was about um, Church of England bishops having commissioned further work on uh, what's known as the seal of the confessional. So this is where a priest hears a confession and vows, obviously, to keep the information private. There's been all kinds of discussion uh, on whether this should apply if someone confesses to something like sex abuse against a child, for example. And there's going to be a new working group considering the whole question again in the light of uh, the final report that comes out next week from the independent inquiry into child sexual abuse. Um, And the panel looking into it includes theologians, uh, church leaders, safeguarding professionals, advisors, and um, hearing from survivors as well. Um, And I was just interested in the whole question, I mean, as an Anglican, the question of confession in the Anglican Church. Yeah. Um, and, and I was wondering, actually, whether there are actually any confessionals, as in an actual structure within a church, where you can make your confession, as there is, as there are in, in Roman Catholic churches, whether there are any still in high Anglican churches. I don't know. But I think even in Catholic churches, the idea of the confessional box has sort of died away in a lot of churches. Has it? People... That's disappointing. Someone who doesn't only sees these things in dramas. Uh, yes, well, no, it's, it's still there. But I mean, only speaking from my own experience, but um, I, I mean, I have to confess my ignorance. I hadn't quite realised it was even a thing in the Anglican Church, but clearly it is. Well, I mean, I read up a bit about it. Um, I mean, it's basically available, you know, in in normal services, there is a, a sort of um, corporate confession, if you like, and a corporate absolution. But you can ask for a personal um confession session, if you like, uh, from your um, Anglican priest. Um, The invitation's there. A small minority do it regularly. But I found an old Anglican saying um, regarding it and regarding who ought to, and it's all can, some should, but none must, apparently. So there you go. I made my first confession at five, by the way. I had no idea what to say. What were you confessing at five? Stole some sweets. Oh. (laughs) <laughs> I hope that stopped you from it doing did. that, Lee. It did. Yeah. shouldn't have said that. <laughs> well, as we mentioned earlier, it's been confirmed this week that King Charles will be crowned on May the 6th next year in Westminster Abbey. The service will be led, of course, by the Archbishop of Canterbury. Buckingham Palace has said in a statement it will reflect the monarch's role today and look towards the future while being rooted in long-standing traditions and pageantry. But I wonder what that means in practical terms, in terms of the actual service, and for clearly a very different looking, much more diverse Britain than was evident in 1953. So with us this week is Catherine Pepinster, journalist, editor and author of Defenders of the Faith, the British Monarchy, Religion and the Next Coronation. Ideal person to talk about this. Catherine, thank you for joining us again. Very glad that you're a you're part of us. And Dr. Azim Ahmed, Deputy Director at the Centre for the Study of Islam in the UK and Secretary General of the Muslim Council of Wales. And Azim, you played a part in the memorial service for the Queen at uh, Clandaff Cathedral a week after her death, didn't you? Saying one of the prayers along with representatives from other faith groups. So, so how was that for you being part of that service? I think it was all a bit of a blur, um, not just because uh, it was organised within uh, something like 36 hours from phone call to being there. Um, but I think also it felt, um, for me at least, and I think for uh, others who kind of, you know, um, 
uh, were watching, it did feel quite historic for mm-hmm. Islam to be on a stage like that, for it to be uh, recognized at a level like that. Um, and also, you know, I was uh, alongside some colleagues who were from a very um, sort of uh, strong Welsh language background. And the inclusion of Welsh in the ceremony also felt very uh, significant. So I think many of us, you know, were very keenly aware of how much Britain had changed um, since uh, the Queen was coronated and uh, to um, uh, King's Child, King Charles's uh, period. And just thinking about how it's not just about religious diversity increasing, but also recognition of minority languages um, and uh, diversity within the country itself. So it did feel significant and it did feel historic, yeah. Mm, absolutely. Catherine, we, we know, of course, of King Charles's huge respect for and and and, and really a good knowledge of of other faith groups but of course he he will still take the coronation coronation oath won't he which includes maintaining the church of england yes that's right and the fact that he takes that oath emphasizes the the way in which the church of england settlement is intertwined in this country with with the state with the law of this land they are locked together and uh, that becomes really apparent at, at the coronation. It, it's also an Anglican service. Uh, and so the, the Church of England will, will, will be very uh, present, very dominant, you could say. The, the coronation is, is, is something uh, which, as the statement from Buckingham Palace said, is rooted in tradition, but it isn't set in stone. So we have uh, aspects of the coronation which go back to 973 and the the crowning of King Edgar, but it has changed over the years. It it hasn't been the same. Because we've got that that black and white footage of the coronation in 1953, I think a lot of people assume that all all coronations have been exactly the same and that's the template. But there, there are certain things that are always included, but they do chop and change it around. And so it, it's entirely possible to change it. it, it you know, there isn't a ban on, on, on uh, development at all. It's going to be shorter, I think, Catherine, isn't it, this year? I think I've read. Well, that's been speculation that it's going to be shorter. Uh, what, what Buckingham Palace said this week did not include them saying it will be shorter but that that has been suggested but there are certain things that we that we're going to see we are going to see prayers we're going to see readings we're going to see music um there will be the key moments of a coronation um everybody assumes that the the most important thing in a coronation is the crowning because that's visually um so special uh, but the, the really important moment is, in terms of it being a religious service is the anointing. So that's that's when the monarch um, is um, given holy oils, um, blessed with these holy oils. And then there are the oaths that we've mentioned already, and then the crownings. Uh, so there's a lot to get in, and and I think if it if it took just an hour. Um, They'll they'll be at, at high speed. <laughs> they'll be flashing through all these points, and um, and I I'm not sure if you could actually squeeze it all into an hour. I think it probably would take at least an hour and a half. But the the 1953 coronation took three hours, but that was as nothing compared to George III's that took five hours. 
Crikey. <laughs> so, and, and, and people who attend these events have to be there for hours on end. Um, Samuel Pepys wrote in his diary, it must have been the coronation of uh, Charles II, um, he, he had to get to Westminster Abbey uh, for 4 a.m., and um, the king, I think it was Charles II, didn't arrive till 11 a.m. And poor old Samuel Pepys recorded that in the end he gave up. He went out to use the loo. Well, that's <laughs> what, I'm, what I'd always worry about is when you can use the loo. Sorry, Amadeem, you wanted to <laughs> chip in. Yeah. I just want to say uh, in the past I've heard Charles talk about being a defender of all faiths. Uh, and as you said, Catherine, this, this coronation ceremony is going to be a, a Christian ceremony, essentially. Uh, just thinking, do you think the, the, the monarchy, Buckingham Palace, the establishment has missed a trick here in that having more, uh, you know, different religions taking part in the coronation itself, uh, not necessarily, you know, a, even a formal part, but some kind of display of um, affection even, or, 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 or saying this is also our monarch as well. Uh, because from, from where I'm standing, that there hasn't really been uh, much... Um, sort of noises from different religions. I don't think they've missed a trick. I think what's happened is that they've made an announcement of the absolute basics and they've said there are going to be more announcements in, in the run-up to the coronation. And I think we'll find, um, as I said a moment ago, that, that a coronation is not a service set in stone and that the, they will be able to adapt it and I think w th that we will see some adaptations. I'm I'm pretty convinced that we'll we'll have um, other Christian denominations involved in some way, not just the Church of England. And I think it's entirely possible that other faiths might be too. And I I was really interested in the services around the devolved nations after the death of the Queen, including the one that Azim was involved with. Um, who I'm sure will be speaking more about that, and uh, that that service in at, at Clandaff in uh, Cardiff uh, made space for uh, a Muslim prayer. Um, the service in Edinburgh had a reading from the Catholic Archbishop up in Scotland, uh, Archbishop of Edinburgh and St Andrews. Uh, that um, might seem a mild thing to some of us, but in uh, Scotland, with its history of sectarianism, that was also a significant moment. So I, th I think some of these services were sort of trial runs almost. Yeah, Azim, what, what would you, what would you like to see as part of the coronation to kind of reflect the religious diversity of the UK? It's a very good question because um, I'm not entirely sure. I think um, even the ceremony I took part in. Uh, I was aware that, you know, while there was this significant and historic, uh, you know, inclusion, the, the type Catherine mentioned and how important that was, oh. you know, it was still in its framework, in its expression, fundamentally Anglican, fundamentally um, a particular sort of uh, uh, religious uh, standpoint. But is I think that, that problematic for you, that, that it is essentially, that's, that's what it is essentially? It's not a problem, but I do think I'd like to see that re-envisioned um, in its entirety. Um, and I think maybe that's a bit too much for the current period. I think ideally what I'd like to see is that same sort of inclusion, but not in a tokenistic way. I think it'd be great to have um, um, in that coronation some kind of recognition of Britain in its fullest diversity and its fullest history, um, uh, including things like, you know, an awareness of, you know, how 
steeped in uh, kind of blood, things like the Koinor Diamond R. Um, so I think mm. that would be nice, but I'm uh, also maybe more optimistic than others. It's interesting you talk about reimagining Azim, um, because I'm thinking that uh, between well between 1689 and 1910, and I know Catherine's going to correct me here, but I mean it was pretty anti-Catholic. Even the declaration of the monarch, and I've got the what they used to say there was, um, this is what the king was supposed to say. I do believe that in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper there is not any transubstantiation of the elements of bread and wine, obviously talking about the Catholic Church, and that I will not support any invocation or adoration of the Virgin Mary or any saint, and that the Church of Rome is superstitious and idolatrous. That was until 1910. So if they could change it for the 1911 coronation of George V, because apparently he, he objected quite strongly to that, then can't we, the defender of faith, as Amadeep was saying, can't we totally reimagine everything now? Uh, yes, you're right. Um, in fact, Leo, um, Edward VII had also objected to some of that language. Um, but the, for his coronation, they said there wasn't quite time to to change it. So it didn't get properly changed till, till George V. So, yes, they can change things. But um, I... I I don't think that it, there's going to be a wholesale reimagining. Um, this this coronation's coming up quite fast. There's usually at least a year between the accession of a monarch and a coronation, um, and that there there isn't a huge amount of time. And to get sort of everybody involved um, to to agree, I'm not sure they'll 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 do that. So I think what they'll do is that they will. They will make changes. They will include some new aspects, but they w- there won't be some wholesale um, ripping up of of what's gone before. Um, anyway, they, they the people organising this would say if you rip it up completely, and you didn't have the anointing, and you didn't have the oaths, and you didn't have the crowning, it wouldn't be a coronation service. So, um, so who knows? Um, one thing that has been speculated on, and we haven't yet heard anything about this, is whether there might be some uh, second event, uh, a, a more secular event in in Westminster Hall. That that's been discussed at times over the years, but so far we've heard nothing about that because um, while. Uh, there are people of different faiths who are expressing views. Of course, what we also have got are a lot of people of no faith in this country. And and some of those um, don't like the idea of a religious ceremony at all. Mm. Yeah. Um, Catherine, thank you so much um, for joining us to talk about that. Uh, we are very grateful for your expertise uh, on this. And no doubt we will talk to you again between now and uh, and May the 6th. Uh, but Azim, do stay with us as we introduce a friend of yours, I think. Leo, over to you. Yeah, the, an interesting report this week. The Ayan Institute, an independent uh, Muslim think tank based in London, has published a, a major new report entitled Ummah at the Margins, the Past, Present and Future of Muslim Minorities. Now, the report sets out a global agenda for Muslim minorities. Over a fifth of Muslims, some 400 million people live as minorities today in different parts of the world. The report's been uh, authored by its research director at the Ayan Institute, Yaya Burt, and I'm pleased to say he's with us today as well for our podcast. Yaya, hello and welcome to our podcast. Um, hello, uh, good morning. The, the report, it's it's detailed, obviously, and meticulously researched. Can you explain a bit for us 
what it means and what you were trying to say. Well, it, it, it is a, an ambitious report and it covers a lot of ground. It's hard to pick out headlines for for a podcast like this. But um, essentially, from our perspective, it was a kind of scoping report because we want it to be a strand of research going forward. Um, so we were sort of laying out the ground, not only empirically, but also conceptually. Basically, in a nutshell, the reason why we did the report is because we saw that the way in which Muslim minorities were being treated in the world, they have no champions, really. Alternatively, you know, where, where minorities are suffering, they tend to get caught into interstate rivalries, particularly between superpowers. And so it's very difficult for, for uh, you know, leverage to be built to sort of champion their cause in, in a kind of non-aligned way, if I can put it that way. Let's take China, for instance. You know, we're obviously terribly concerned about what is happening with the Uyghur population yeah. of some 12 million. Um, but one of the problems that we have is is that the the kind of diasporic Uyghur lobby is really tightly in the control of two nation states. Really, one is the mm. Americans, and the other are the Turks. Um, and what you know, the the Americans want to disrupt China's Belt and Road expansion, which is economically very important for the Middle East and the greater wider Muslim world. And the Turks are interested in a kind of a greater Turkestan. And are pushing for separatism. Now the thing is, is that when you when you're pursuing a human rights cause, you don't necessarily want to align with those lobbies in a in a mm. in, in in an uncritical way. Uh, you want to pursue the you know case on its own merits. So for minorities, if they're mobilized, Muslim minorities are mobilized on an issue like that. They don't want to be mobilized through geopolitical structures in that way. And so it's about having a critical conversation about how they can work effectively outside of interstate rivalries. The other thing I would say is that politics, that, you know, Muslim global politics is incredibly complicated. You know, we've got um, 50 Muslim majority nation states and we've got dozens of minorities around the world. And the way that they, they interlock and don't interlock, it's sort of like f five-dimensional chess. Nobody can claim to be on top of it, you know, and, and so it's incredibly difficult when these sort of big problems like what's happening in India, there are multiple actors with multiple interests at play. So trying to just to get a principled handle on it is extremely difficult. Um, yeah, yeah, can I just ask, how, how many Muslims live as minorities? Okay, so um, about um, over 400 million and it's um you know we you know they're in every country of the world but but with minorities with populations of over a million there are 31 and 50% of all minority muslims live in india which has got the second largest muslim population in the world and for us as we say in the report india is key because there are, there are lots of indications that indian muslims are in a pre-genocidal position constant demonization, uh, structural discrimination pursued through the media, the courts, the police, pogroms, open public punishment, storming of mosques, burning of Muslim businesses and homes, lynchings, um, and the pace of that is increasing. But there are no, there's no really strong coordinated effort internationally to, to confront the Indian government over this. There isn't really uh, a single champion. 
because I think India is a growing economy and there's a lot of interest in Indian business. Um, I think that's the fundamental reason. And I think India is seen as a counterweight to Russia and China who are at odds with the West. What we try to do in the report is that we try to kind of provide this big picture and we look globally at, you know, the kind of key issues uh, facing minorities. So as I said, it's a big report. It could talk about mm-hmm. lots of different things. Mm-hmm. Amadeep. Yeah, just a couple of things. Uh, yeah, yeah, I just want to, to ask you regarding this. Uh, firstly, when, you, when you're talking about minorities, are we talking as in numbers minorities? Is, is, is that how you're, you're working out what a minority is, as in they're a certain percentage and it's based on numbers? And secondly, you talked about these minorities being used almost as political footballs by bigger superpowers or people with their own or states with their own vested interests, uh, and that you will, you know, sort of give these minorities some some leverage. Uh, I just want to sort of ask where where would this leverage come from? What kind of leverage would uh, the Ayan Institute have, um, you know, for these for these minority Muslims? Uh, well, uh, yeah, minority, yes, um, there's a numerical dimension to it, but also we in the report talk about minority as a political concept. So f- as far as Muslim minorities are concerned, there are two trajectories for that. One is the kind of European idea of um, going back to the Treaty of Westphalia in the 17th century. Um, minorities are loyal to the, to the, to the you know, bounded nation state. The other tradition is is colonialism, where you know under colonial rule, all native populations were def- divided up and defined in different ways as different kinds of minorities, whether by religion, tribe, ethnicity, or whatever. Under colonial rule, even though the colonial power was a minority itself, so those are the two ideas of minority. With regard to uh, leverage, you know, again, you know, Ayan Institute founded in twenty twenty, we're a startup. You know, we we have no illusions about, you know, that it's going to be a slog. But what we found so far, you know, there's been a good response locally and internationally to the report. The report has struck a nerve because Muslim minorities feel nobody really cares about them or writes about them. So it's really struck a nerve. You, You say in the report that the Muslim world is in crisis. I mean, that's pretty strong language. And I I wonder what Azim makes of it as well, actually. That point about crisis, it is definitely, I think a feeling very strongly felt by Muslims, um, especially those in minority countries. So there is this sense of, you know, it's not just a global context of you know, economic change and superpowers competing, Ukraine conflict and so on, but also the sense that, um, you know, there are many cases where Muslims are on the back foot, whether it's the Uyghurs in China, whether it's Muslims in Europe, whether it's um, uh, the Rohingya in uh, Burma or in um the Indian context. Um, and I think uh, for a while now, alongside sort of campaigning, there's been a desire to think, well, how can we move beyond that? And I think Diane Institute's kind of provided the response to that. So I'm very keenly kind of looking towards what the wider response is as well from Muslims who are sort of um, on the fringes, as on, on, on the margins. Just briefly, Yaya, what would be your ideal response from this? Uh, I, I think that the, the, a lot of the report is based on a toolkit for minorities so making a way out of no way and and it's sort of 10 practical steps of how they can sort of increase their organization their resilience self-reliance um it does require a little bit of turning away from the state and it does focus on institution building and networking and and upskilling and things like that um uh, so there is an element of kind of self-empowerment 
um, and also global communication between these minorities and a, new, a more mature relationship with Muslim majorities because in recent decades, certainly we've seen, um, particularly since 9-11, uh, the, the Muslim majority states, particular states, seeing these minorities as either strategic assets or liabilities without any consultation. So um, that's often had quite directly bad consequences for Muslim minorities. Um, mm. I won't go into examples today, but the report does does, do, does mention a few of these. So we, we need better communication and more a, a more equal dialogue, if you like, mm. with with big Muslim nations using Islam as a kind of soft power leverage over Muslim minorities. Well, it's really it's really good to hear more about it. Um, uh, just before we let you go, can I just throw this in? Next week, um, our RMC briefing on Tuesday is on 100 Years of the BBC and religion on the BBC. That's Tuesday at 12 o'clock. There's info about it on the RMC website. So I hope lots of people will join in on that. But, but Yaya... Um, your dad was director general of the BBC, wasn't he, in the 1990s? Oh, a long time ago. It is a long time ago. <laughs> but I just, while I've got you, I just thought, I mean, I know you were an adult uh, by then, but there must have been some perks to being the DG's son. Come on, did you did you go to anything? Was there anything that stood out for you? Come on. Uh, you know, well, you know, we used to go backstage, we used to go to stuff and we used to meet people. I was a big Doctor Who nerd. So, uh, you know, I, for me, I You're talking my big, language now, yeah, yeah. The big <laughs> thing was meeting Doctor Who. Uh, who, was, who was the Doctor? <laughs> that was a question point. I was going to ask. I think, I think it was David Tennant because my dad got, um, my dad got tickets uh, for the kids who were big Doctor Who fans at that moment. And, you see, uh, there's, yeah. Good. Yeah. I'm very glad there should be perks, frankly. <laughs> fantastic. Yeah. Fantastic. Um, Leo, uh, any quirks from you this week? Quirks? Well, do you know what? This story's been around for a few weeks, but I haven't seen it. It's been bizarrely claimed that Jesus invented cricket. Did you know that? Uh, no, I didn't know that. Yeah, apparently. Um, That's come Armen- out of left field. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Armenian professor Dr. Abraham Terian found a manuscript in the library of the Armenian Patriarchate of Jerusalem. And actually, you you know the Gnostic Gospels. So there are certain Gospels which were accepted by the church and others that weren't. So it, it's an 8th century document that uh, relates to a much older Gnostic gospel, gospel about the infancy of Jesus. And it talks about him playing bat and balls uh, with children. So Stop. there you go. So Jesus invented cricket. And very quickly, did you know that the smallest army in the world's smallest state is on a major recruitment drive? Do you know where that is? Uh, no. Smallest state in the world? Vatican City? Vatican City, Azim. Ten points to you. So actually, they need to get 25 more guards. You have to be between 18 and 25. And be prepared to wear that magnificent outfit. Yeah. And you have to be five foot seven. So I'm six foot two, but I'm actually more than double the maximum age. Oh, I'm so sorry about that. And you have to be Swiss. So I'm kind of marked out of that. But I just thought 23% increase. And I wonder why that is. Very interesting. Catherine, do you know why they're increasing the, the guard, the Swiss guard? Uh. No, maybe it boosts tourism. I don't. I don't know. I've often, when I've gone to um, to places to give talks, uh, and it's been about the Roman Catholic Church. There's nearly always a question about the Swiss Guards. <laughs> it's something that people really 
connect with with the Vatican and going to St Peter's in Rome. Well, it's great um, gear. It's, if you've seen it, it's it is great gear. Magnificent gear. gear. Great, yeah. You've got to say there you that. Go. That's well, my quirk. Thank you. Loving your quirks this week. Thank you to everyone uh, who's joined us this week. Yaya Burt, Azim Ahmed, and Catherine Pepinster. That's this week's Religion Media Centre podcast. Do let us know what you think. Share it widely. From Leo, Amadeep, and myself, thanks for spending some time with us. We'll be back next Friday. Bye for now. The Religion Media Centre is an impartial and independent organisation providing an expert resource for the media and other interested parties to help the reporting and understanding of religion and beliefs. You can find news, fact sheets, briefings and lots more on the website at religionmediacentre.org.uk where you can also sign up for a daily roundup of stories about religion and belief from the UK and around the world straight to your inbox. If you'd like to support the podcast and the work we do, contributions are very welcome. Thank you if you do, have or will. It all helps us continue to tell the stories that matter and it's hugely appreciated.